An absolutely enormous stream of indignant messages and telegrams had poured into the White House criticizing Truman. And it's kind of a funny thing that Truman was this notoriously really, really thin-skinned guy. He was kind of a bit like Donald Trump, actually. He took this kind of criticism really, really personally. He complained that American Jews were being mean to him and that they were unfair. Welcome to another episode of America Explained podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gothel. Like many of you, I've been bombarded in the last weeks and months with images and reports of the violence that's unfolding in the Middle East. It's such a horrible situation which fills me with such despair because there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way of seeing ultimately how these two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians and Israelis in the Arab world, can reconcile and stop the cycle of violence that they seem to be trapped in. Now, For today's episode, I want to go back to the roots of this conflict. Today is the anniversary of a vote in the UN General Assembly which partitioned what was the British protectorate, that's a fancy word for colony, of Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab. This vote set in motion the creation of the State of Israel and its subsequent wars with its Arab neighbors, and really set history down the path that we are still treading today. In this episode, I'm going to explore the history of America's attitude to the creation of Israel and this early history, when the events were fluid, when there seemed to be many possible futures which might unfold. And I'm going to explore what decisions by American policymakers set us down the path that we are on today and what influence they had over these events. Nowadays, we're used to the idea that the United States always will stand behind Israel, will always see itself as a close ally of Israel. But back in the early decades of Israel's existence, many American policymakers viewed Israel quite differently. They saw it as a nuisance and as a distraction from America's need to keep on good terms with the Arab world. In this episode, I'm going to explore this little discussed history and what it can tell us about the roots of today's conflict in the Middle East. So as always, thanks for listening to America Explained. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend or consider checking out our newsletter. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes for this episode. And if you sign up for that, then you receive several posts a week bringing you updates on US politics and foreign policy from an international perspective. So let's set the scene. Until the late 1910s, Palestine had been a province of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire got on the wrong side of World War I. It was among the losers of that conflict because it allied with Germany. And then after the war, the victorious European powers basically carved up the Ottoman Empire and split it among themselves. Britain, during World War I, had allied with various Arab nationalists in order to undermine the Ottoman Empire. So basically Britain thought, if we go and and support insurgencies among the Arab peoples against the Ottoman Empire, which had its capital in Turkey, was not ethnically Arab, then we can help to weaken the Ottoman Empire and make it more likely that we'll defeat them in World War I. When Britain had been allying with these Arab nationalists, and so 
This is the, the famous exploits of Lawrence of Arabia were part of this. So you can go watch that movie if you want to know more about it. When they allied with the Arab nationalists, Britain promised the Arabs their own independent state or states after World War ended. But at the same time that Britain was promising in them independent states, it was also entering into a secret agreement with France called the Sykes-Picot Agreement to carve up the Arab territories after the war was over and to claim them, some of them for Britain, some of them for France. Also during World War, Britain issued the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration said that Britain would support in the future the emergence of a national home for the Jewish people in what was then Palestine. So these two British decisions, firstly to carve up the Middle East and make it part of their empire, and secondly the decision to support the emigration of Jews from Europe and elsewhere to Palestine to set up a new homeland, really set the scene for the modern Middle East. From 1922, Palestine was ruled by Britain as a colony. And during that time, the UK promised to provide both Jews and Arabs a national home in Palestine, but they heavily favoured the Jewish cause. This was a time when the Zionist movement, which was a movement among European Jews, saying that the Jewish people deserved their own state and could only be secure with their own state, was really, really gaining in popularity, both among European Jews, but also among many other sympathetic Gentiles. Many British policymakers who were heavily steeped in a biblical education were very sympathetic to the plight of Jews who'd been oppressed in many European countries, supported the Zionist movement. And as a result of this, Britain started to let in many, many Jewish immigrants into Palestine to set up a new home there and, and kind of have somewhere where they could be secure and prosperous. The fact that they allowed so many Jewish immigrants into Palestine was really, really resented by the country. Arab population, who saw this essentially as a type of colonialism. You know, the Jewish people were coming from Europe and taking their land. Ultimately, this led to an uprising by the Palestinian Arabs in the 1930s against the British authorities and against the Jewish population, and thousands of people were killed during that uprising. It led Britain to really start to rethink its policy. And Britain went through that rethinking basically just in time for World War II to begin. So in 1939, the same year that Nazi Germany invaded Poland and the events of the Holocaust were set in motion, the UK authorities decided to clamp down massively on Jewish immigration into Palestine in order to try to restore peace within Palestine. So not long after that, you know, given what was happening in Europe and, and the, the Holocaust and the tremendous oppression and genocide of Jews which was taking place, Jews within Palestine began a terrorist campaign against the UK imperial authorities because they wanted more immigration of Jewish people into Palestine, they wanted Jews to be allowed to flee Europe and come into Palestine, and they ultimately wanted the British occupation authorities to leave so that they could take a state for themselves. Britain eventually, by the end of the war and, and several years afterwards, decides that it does want to leave Palestine, and it kind of kicks the, the problem over to the United Nations. So at this point, it's 1947. You 
you have an incredibly volatile situation. Living in Palestine, you have a Jewish movement and an Arab movement, both of which want independence and control over Palestine. You have no force that's mediating between them, so you have essentially a power vacuum because, or an impending power vacuum because Britain has announced that it's leaving the territory of Palestine. And into this situation steps the United Nations, and on this day, 76 years ago, it voted to partition Palestine into two states. So one of those states would be Jewish and one of them would be Arab. And Jerusalem, which both people claimed as their capital, would be administered by an international authority. This plan for the partition of Palestine was welcomed by the Jewish population, but it was really, really bitterly opposed by Arabs in Palestine and in the surrounding Arab states. Not least because it took away so much land that was owned by Palestinian farmers. And in the, the Palestinian cities, which were still majority Palestinian in population, some of them were surrounded entirely by the Jewish state. So they were surrounded entirely by Jewish territory. And even though under the plan, both the Jewish state and the Arab state were supposed to respect the religious and the civil rights of the other minority, so, you know, the Arabs in the Jewish state and the Jews in the Arab state, were supposed to have full rights. But Nobody really believed that that was going to happen. You know, they thought that, okay, if an Arab ends up in the Jewish state, they'll be oppressed, they'll have their property taken away. So after the vote on partition, almost immediately afterwards, fighting breaks out in Palestine and it continues for months. Now, the result of this, what Israelis call the Israeli War of Independence and what Palestinians call the Nakba, which translates as the catastrophe, the Jewish population took over a huge amount of the territory which had been allotted for that Palestinian state. They managed to push the Arab armed forces back and they also carried out a massive campaign of ethnic cleansing um, and took over much of that Palestinian territory. And eventually the following March, they declare the creation of the state of Israel. Now, watching this in Washington, many US policymakers had been incredibly nervous. The president at this time was President Truman. He was famously a guy who was not particularly knowledgeable about world affairs. Franklin Roosevelt had chosen him as a running mate, not because of, you know, he knew a lot about the Middle East, but because picking him was helpful in various domestic political ways. Truman was kind of caricatured as a bit of a country bumpkin. He was the last American president not to have gone to college, and he tended to view the world very much through the prism of, of his upbringing in a small town in Missouri. He was getting completely different advice from the so-called experts in the American government. So the majority view among Truman's expert foreign policy advisors, and particularly his Secretary of State, George Marshall, who was considered to be by most of his contemporaries the greatest living American or the greatest American of the 20th century, this towering figure who had spent his life in service to America and gathered great experience in foreign affairs and defense matters through various posts in the military and in civilian government institutions. He was opposed, like many of the other expert foreign policy advisors, to the US giving too much support for the Jewish population of Palestine and for the creation of the state of Israel. And many of Truman's advisors just did not want Truman to actually even formally diplomatically acknowledge the creation of the state of Israel. The basic argument that this group of people made was that 
for the future of US foreign policy, relations with the Arab states was going to be much more important than relations with Israel. So this group pointed out that the Arab states were numerically much stronger than Israel. That meant that they most likely would prevail over it eventually. So even when Israel managed to win this, this war of independence and to declare the existence of their state, most American foreign policy advisors thought that this wasn't the end of the battle that ultimately Israel was going to lose and that maybe it would cease to exist as a state. This meant that US advisors, foreign policy advisors, were much more concerned about keeping good relations with those Arab states because they believed that they would ultimately be victorious. And even if they weren't victorious, good relations with them was much more important in terms of the future balance of power between America and the Soviet Union. So at the same time that Israel has been created, the Cold War is really, really beginning. And most American military officials and diplomats are thinking about everything through this prism of what helps us in the Cold War against the Soviets. While the Arab states were much more numerically powerful, they had vast oil reserves, which the Western world needed access to. They were host to all kinds of oil pipelines and American military bases, which were going to be important for keeping the American position in the Middle East. And so the you know, these US officials just thought we really need to keep the Arab countries on side and we don't we shouldn't go out on a limb for this small, you know, geopolitically insignificant state, which at the moment just doesn't really contribute anything to our national security. Also, another aspect of this was that the US military was really worried that it would get drawn into this fighting on behalf of Israel. So the US military was always dead set against being involved in enforcing that partition plan or in helping helping the state of Israel defend itself because again they saw they thought that this would be an absolute catastrophe for US relations with Arab countries it would divert potentially hundreds of thousands of troops away from more necessary theaters like Europe now, the US did, despite this advice, it did support the plan to partition Palestine because at that point it hoped that some kind of compromise would be found and that there would become two states and that peace would emerge. But once it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, the US was very unwilling to help the Jewish population in Palestine achieve victory. And then after they did achieve that victory, very reluctant to acknowledge it. Some American officials pu pushed for the partition plan to actually be abandoned and for the whole of Palestine to be placed under a kind of international trusteeship, meaning that neither side would get a state and international authorities would run that colony for an indefinite period. This caused a huge uproar in the American Jewish community because they thought that essentially this proposal was designed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They were on the brink of militarily conquering Palestine and then here came this proposal from Washington to actually deny them that victory and place the whole thing under some kind of international authority. So so this became a really important factor in the Truman administration's decisions. Even though most of Truman's foreign policy advisors were against the idea of recognizing Israel, his domestic political advisors came out much more strongly in favor of recognition, particularly a guy called Clark Clifford, who would go on to be a very, very high ranking. Uh, he would be Secretary of Defense eventually under Lyndon Johnson. At this time, he was a relatively young, inexperienced domestic policy advisor to Truman. And he knew that Truman had been taking an enormous amount of political criticism from the American Jewish community for seeming to flip flop 
on the issue of recognizing Israel. An absolutely enormous stream of indignant messages and telegrams had poured into the White House criticizing Truman. And it's kind of a funny thing that Truman was this notoriously really, really thin-skinned guy. He was kind of a bit like Donald Trump, actually. He took this kind of criticism really, really personally. He complained that American Jews were being mean to him and that they were unfair. He said a few times, this is the kind of thing that makes people into anti-Semites because, you know, you Jewish people are just completely unreasonable. He said, so this is a quote from him, he said, I received about 35,000 pieces of mail and propaganda from the Jews in this country while this matter was pending. I put it all in a pile and struck a match to it. I never looked at a single one of those letters. End quote. Now that part about burning it is not true. We know that because Truman recorded his reactions to some of this mail, and some of those reactions I can't repeat on a family podcast. Truman did manage to restrain himself from actually replying to this th these letters, which is kind of funny because at other points in his presidency he didn't do that. Once a journalist wrote a really bad review of a musical performance by Truman's daughter, and Truman wrote back to him in a letter saying, quote, someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you're going to need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for your black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. I'll let you figure out what he means by a supporter below. It's kind of amazing that Truman was willing to send this letter to a reporter threatening to beat him up. So you can see that Truman was a guy that was used to acting rashly in response to things that made him irritated or, or angry. And there was a, a chance that he might have been really alienated by this pressure that he was placed under. But he also recognized that the domestic politics of this decision did matter. Jewish votes would matter in the next election, and meanwhile there wasn't really any Arab-American constituency in the United States. Clifford also argued to Truman that in the long run, it would benefit the US to have a democratic ally in the Middle East. This was kind of the reverse logic to that of the president's main foreign policy advisors. They said that an alliance with Israel would actually weaken the US in the region by turning the Arab states against it. Clifford said, no, in the long run, Israel will become successful, it will become powerful, and it will become an important ally of ours and a tool of our foreign policy that we can use to advance our goals in the region. Now, this Clifford's argument was actually kind of nonsensical because at the time, most of America's interests in the Middle East were reliant on the Arab countries. They had the oil, they had the military bases, they were this crucial swing vote between the United States and the Soviet Union. So I think that for Clifford to say that supporting Israel helps us to, you know, keep those interests didn't really make much sense. And, and so Clifford was really making an argument from a domestic political perspective, which he supported with this twisted foreign policy logic. Ultimately, Truman, though, did opt to recognize Israel over the advice of his foreign policy advisors, and that's a decision that rings down to this day. It was ultimately a lot easier for Truman, just like it is for most Americans today, to identify America with Israeli Jews. So Truman, this guy who had an instinctive feeling for foreign affairs and for American domestic politics, he had no deep knowledge of the Middle East, but he looked at the Jewish population of Palestine and what became Israel, and he saw were people who he recognized culturally. They were of European descent. Many of them had this kind of, you know, Israel had this rhetoric that it was on the frontier in the way that Americans had been on the frontier, that they were transforming a inhospitable country into a flowering 
productive agrarian society. And this really appealed to Truman, and it has really appealed to many Americans since. But for decades afterwards, the views that have been espoused by Clifford remained the minority position in the American foreign policy establishment. And most American officials spent their time worrying about how to get back into the good books of the Arab states. In many ways, this debate over Israel with both its strategic and its moral dimensions continues to this present day. People argue over whether Israel is a strategic asset for the United States or whether it's a liability which makes it impossible for America to have good relations with the Arab world. It's also the case that this this kind of battle over who to culturally identify with in this conflict continues to this day. It's still much easier for most Americans to see Israelis as people like them, and to see Palestinians as people who aren't like them, who it's easier to deny the humanity of. And it's still the case that we tend to find the strongest supporters of Israel among the segment of the American population, particularly American evangelicals, who have a relatively unsophisticated view of foreign affairs, but who feel very strongly this sense of religious and cultural attachment to Israel, that the continued um, success of the Israeli national project is really, really important to them, whereas what happens to the Palestinians is not really that important at all. And we tend to find among foreign policy thinkers and diplomats and officials that there's much more of a desire to try to bring peace to the Middle East, to try to resolve this situation in a way which allows America to maintain in good standing with the Arab states as well as with Israel. So the US is still really mired in this situation, which was created by British colonialism and the competing aspirations of the Jewish and the Arab national movements in Palestine over a century ago. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about that on today's episode of America Explained. I also did a recent post on our newsletter about this topic, focusing on why America gave up on trying to bring peace to the Middle East over the last 10 or 15 years. Please check that out if you want more on this topic, and I'll see you next time for another episode of America Explained. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.